Welcome to Spin It, a business podcast that takes you into the lives of some of today's most influential leaders, entrepreneurs, game changers, athletes, and many more. On Spin It, we take a deep dive into the lives and journeys of our guests to deliver real, unfiltered, and unscripted conversations that will surely inspire hope and promote change. We focus not on their current success, but on the obstacles and challenges that they faced along the way that often doesn't get talked about. How they battled adversity, getting up and being knocked down when all of the odds were stacked against them. Today, I'll be talking with Jeanette Harvey, who is the founder and CEO of Harper & Gray, a talent solutions company that leads with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Jeanette grew up in UK without much money or resources. Still, she didn't let that deter her on her road to success. After moving to the US at age 23 to start a company, her confidence and leadership skills made her stand out. After 15 years with the same company, Jeanette left to start her own business with a focus on helping other companies diversify their workplace. The entrepreneurship journey is hard enough, yet Jeanette was doing this pregnant with her second child. I'm so excited to have Jeanette on the show today to talk about how she learned to share her authentic story of where she came from. She talks about the challenges she faced as an entrepreneur with a baby on the way and how great leadership can take a company to the next level. Hi, Jeanette. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's dive right in. Let's start off by talking about your childhood. You grew up in UK in an environmental and social class where you didn't have a ton. Can we talk about that? Yeah, for sure. It's funny because I actually just wrote a chapter for Scott McGregor's book, Standing Out, which was all about kind of gratitude. And so it was the first time that I really reflected on this, I think in in real detail, the fact that growing up with very little, so, you know, kind of broken home, uh, quite a lot of, of sort of disruption, I would say, definitely lower socioeconomic class sort of fighting for for everything and very little in terms of of kind of role models it's only recently as I, I was kind of reflecting as I was writing that chapter that I have so much to be grateful for in terms of crediting that with where I am today I think just this idea of you make your own you, you know you make your own fortune you make your own sort of success that that became so innate in me from such a young age. And uh, yeah, I, I think that was in part due to, to kind of having to go without as a child. So that's amazing. And, and I don't know um, how much you know about me, but I had a very similar experience um, where we didn't have, we just didn't have a lot. And I look back on the grit and tenacity and the move forward and the purpose. And while it evolved and it got bigger and better and bigger and better, it still is so much of my story of what I didn't have and what kind of what I built myself into being. And again, it evolved. It wasn't always stagnant, but I think it's so important to talk about those type of things for people that are listening. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because it's only in the last year that I've actually even shared that as part of my story. So I realized maybe somewhat subconsciously that I spent much of my life actually being kind of ashamed of where I came from. You know, I didn't want people to know that I grew up with nothing. And so the more successful that I became, 
when other people would sort of talk about their upbringing and and all the privilege that they had, it almost made me sort of, I, I wanted to, I didn't want anyone to ask me about myself. And I realized how much that sort of prevented me from showing up as my authentic self because I, would, I wanted this veneer of perfection yes. and and I, and I was afraid <laughs> I guess of, of other people judging me the only person judging me was I was judging myself and in sharing my story and being so much more transparent around where I came from and some of my struggles I realized how much that means to other people as well and how it gives them the courage to own their story and it's just been a really interesting point of, of connection to just sort of own your roots, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And you know what, Jeanette, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I had very similar feelings. I remember back in college, I remember like when people would go home for the holiday or I remember when, you know, there was parent weekend, like it almost looked like this little fairy tale like creeped onto campus and I, I didn't have any of that. And everybody was really close to their parents and everybody was really engaged. And I just felt embarrassed. and I felt ashamed. And it wasn't so much, especially later, it wasn't so much that I hid it, but I definitely didn't speak about it. And I definitely skirted the issue. So I, I didn't talk about my father drowning. I didn't talk about my mom's mental health. I didn't talk about any of that. And about three or four years ago, I was sitting with a client on an airplane and we just started talking. We just, we had a lot of time to kill and we just started talking. And I remember he said to me, he turned in his seat and he looked at me and he goes, why don't people know this about you? And I was, I wasn't mean or I wasn't rude or I wasn't disrespectful. I'm like, who cares? Like I'm usually engaging with my clients. I'm helping them, you know, like I'm, I'm providing a service to them. I'm not sitting down and talking about myself. And he goes, do you have any idea how much more connection and how much more approachable with what you would be with other people if they knew. And I was like, really? And at this point, for me, it's outdated, you know, married children kind of moved on, you know, and he was like, Steph, tell your story. And I remember when I did it, it was the weirdest feeling, Jeanette. And I wonder if you felt like that, too. It was like, okay, I mean, there's there's nothing else like that. That was kind of like, that's it. And if I can just help one person, just one person feel more connected or feel like they can do it. If I can inspire or impact one person to be able to believe in themselves, all of it was worth it. And then it just became really natural to go, oh, well, let me tell you about this. Did you feel like that as well? Yeah, I think it was a, a sense of relief that comes from just showing yeah. up as your full self. You know, sometimes it can sound a little bit cliche, but that's exactly what it is. It's it's not censoring who you are or just showing up as, as kind of, a, you know, just this one version. I, I think that the congruence in our bringing our whole self, right, not showing a persona and yeah. actually being a person is so important and so yeah I definitely went through that where once I'd shared I was like oh, I can breathe now that's a, yeah that's it's a, like an exhale that's exactly what it's yeah, like you're completely it's right like that's a relief and I also think uh, it's, it's kind of the the same advice I think people give around public speaking, which is just focus on that one person that you're going to help. And I think it, the same is is true with with this, that once you realize that it's actually also not about you, it's about what you can do for other people in telling your story and owning it. And when I, let's just take a platform like LinkedIn, where I've been really 
candid and, and kind of shared a lot of experiences. And the first time I, I made a, a, a very vulnerable post and it went viral, I was like, oh my God, I wasn't expecting that reaction. But the messages that I got in my inbox from people telling me their stories and sharing yeah. how um, me being so candid about my journey in being a single mom and my divorce and things like that, how it actually really given them so much more uh, confidence or it encouraged them. That's what really made me sit up and say, hang on, the air of uh, perfection, that's not helping anyone actually, but just exactly. being vulnerable, that's where I can be useful. That's where I can really help people. And it sort of inspired me to continue to lean into that. And we'll talk about it shortly, but we'll go into that with your leadership skills and how incredible those are. But I really, for me, Jeanette, that was the biggest thing with leadership was it wasn't so much about me as it was so much about inspiring others to make them have the vulnerability, the authenticity to let them know being disingenuous is not helping them connect and to move forward. And it's actually interesting. And I'm sure I have no doubt that you'll agree when those DMs come in through your LinkedIn, those are fuel. Those are just like, wow, people think you give so much by sharing that vulnerable story, but what you get back in return, those connections, those, gosh, Jeanette, I got through the night because I read your story and, you know, this is what I'm going to do. Those for me were everything. Same. I completely agree. So let's talk about your journey with STEM. Not only were you a woman in STEM, which already a minority, but you were also a biracial woman in STEM. Where did your interest in STEM actually come from? So my path into the corporate world was not necessarily a, a kind of a traditional one. I did a few different things kind of growing up. I'd uh, sort of packed my bags at age 18 and uh, headed for the bright lights of London and um, I'm going to make it on my own type story. And uh, so I, I actually did um, a lot in sales. And, you know, when you think about sales, really, it's about building relationships and building connection. And I realized quite early on that I was kind of pretty good at building connections with people. And uh, so I'd actually spent vacation in the States and I decided that this was where I wanted to be. And um, I started looking at organizations that were planning to expand uh, internationally. And I'd spent some time in staffing and consulting at this point. And it was just, I mean, I took to it like a duck to water and had, a, you know, a, a lot of early success. And then the S3 group kind of ended up feeling like home for me. It was full of people who were very entrepreneurially minded. They sort of touted the word meritocracy, which at the time I really resonated with me, just the idea of what you put in is what you get out. They were specialists in the STEM space. And oh, okay. I bought my experience to, to sort of recruitment, found out that they were wanted to launch this business in the US and, and somehow convinced them that my early 20s that I'd be a great co-founder for it. I joined my the guy who went on to, to really be my boss for the next 15 years and we had a wonderful relationship and just kind of went on this journey of first building out our 
US client base from the UK for a year. And then I was 23 when I boarded the plane and uh, moved to, to New York. And I've been in the States ever since and deeply embedded in kind of the STEM space and all that really goes with that, right? From the perspective of, you know, the gender gap and the challenges that go alongside that. So let's stay there for just a second before we get to the journey of you coming to New York, switching another bright lights for more bright lights. Were you taken seriously? Did you ever have to stand up for yourself? Like, what did that look like? Because again, number one, super young, again, a woman, again, biracial. Did you have to stand up for yourself or were you taken pretty seriously out of the gate? I think that I was really the benefactor of ignorance on my own part. So I don't think early on, I think I really understood how this world worked. And I didn't really understand how stacked my own deck was. And so in a lot of ways, I think that was actually really helpful, because I just Mm -hmm. came in and knew the stuff that I was really good at. And when I look back on it, and I think about some of my big pictures, and like winning clients that would go on to be worth millions and millions of dollars, perhaps they did look at this young girl coming through the door and thinking, what's she going to do for us? Um, But because she didn't have at that stage imposter syndrome or I just was kind of, you know, that actually came later for me. It was almost like the further I climbed and the, the more aware I became, the more those sorts of issues kind of crept in. But early on in my career, I was so supremely confident at what I was doing and the value that I was adding. And every time I would work with a client, you know, I'd get sort of glowing you know, sort of feedback from them. So it just kind of reinforced it that the early part of my career was pretty seamless, to be honest with you. Yeah. So I, again, I I absolutely love that, Jeanette, because so much of your story resonates with me and that ignorance is bliss. Because, you know, you just go there what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to create connections. You're supposed to create sales. I often tell the story. It's a hysterical story really quick is I would Nike was a client and, you know, we had spreadsheets and you have to call off the spreadsheets. And so that's what you do. You call off the spreadsheets and you have to check 50 off a day. And that's just what you do. And I happened to be in the office super early. I ended up setting a meeting at Nike and I went and I did what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to talk about what they were doing and what was working and what wasn't working and, and act interested. But most of the time I really was interested. I really had a lot to say. And I wanted, and the other thing is I was constantly curious. I wanted to know, even if it, if I had no interest in the subject or the product or the service, I wanted to know more because that would create connections with other people. And I was 10 minutes into a meeting and I didn't realize I was meeting with Phil Knight, who was the founder of Nike. I had no idea great guy, but he was, he kept looking at me so odd and asking me if I had a projector. And I just thought it was the weirdest thing in the world. I was like, no, I don't have a projector. Like who would I be to come in and talk to an executive at Nike without even knowing what their issues were? Do you have problems? Do you not? Are things working well for you? Are they not? Jeanette, he was like this the whole time. And then when I left and I was in, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't Uber. Okay. So when I'm in the taxi going back, I'm telling somebody, I'm like, oh, I had a great meeting. And they're like, oh, who is it with? And I'm like, Phil Knight. And they're like, LOL. And I'm like, wait, what, what? Like no idea. And you're exactly right. So the second that I figured out, oh my God, I could have done this. I could have said this. I could have done this. I was just like, I can't go. I can't go by myself. I don't know what to do. And it became so much bigger in my head. So 
that ignorance and just being yourself and showing up and really honestly just showing up and being fully present for your client and the sales and the connection and the relationship is so absolutely important. So I love that you brought that up. That's amazing. Okay, you get to New York, you're 23, and you start building this business. What made you leave your home and your family to cross the ocean to work in the U.S.? What was this compelling thing? <laughs> so, I mean, honestly, there's pros and cons, isn't there, to having an ocean between you and family. And uh, I love my mom and I love my sister and, and friends, but uh, it was definitely nice to, to cut the cord for sure. So I fell in love with New York the first time that I ever came here on vacation and from that moment, I I thought I have this is where I have to live. I mean, I, I always really, you know, as a child, was quite enamoured with American culture, and then moving here and the accent ended up being uh, such a nice uh, such a nice selling point. People seem to be very enamoured with uh, the British accent, so that was <laughs> that was a big bonus. If it doesn't work, you can always do voiceovers, oh, no, right? Totally. <laughs> I mean, half the time they didn't understand a word of what I was saying but like, I love your accent can't understand it but <laughs> and you're like great you're like sign here <laughs> exactly. so um so yes yeah, so it was just really I mean the energy and I, I really think that there's probably no better place to cut your teeth in business than than New York I mean when I think about the initial business that I founded, which was the banking and technology space. So all my clients were major investment banks mm -hmm. and hedge funds and proprietary trading firms. There's not very many sort of sharper uh, individuals that you're going to be showing up and, and kind of meeting and, and delivering. And, you know, they don't suffer fools gladly. And that was perfect. That was great. It was exactly the tempo that I wanted and um, so I sort of feel that teed me up so nicely for the things that I then went on to do because if you can succeed with that particular client base and succeed you know really set yourself apart you can do anything right I mean you absolutely like that's that's completely correct if you can make it in New York if you can make it in in fin and tech and if you can do it at such a young age it's all downhill from there, my friend. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you started an office and there was, what, four or five people in the office? Yeah. How was that? Talk to me about that. Like, talk to me about setting up this office. You're in a brand new country. You are setting up a brand new business. What are some of the things that you were feeling as you were doing this? When I look back to that time, it was honestly the most enjoyable and exciting time of my life. So I, I just was speaking to my former boss who ended up leaving S3 right around the same time as me. And so we were just reminiscing the other day on the phone and saying, God, we never really realized how good we had it during that first yeah. year. I mean, it's nice that we got to almost experience being entrepreneurs without our own checkbooks being on the line um, because, you know, we really had very little support from the center in, in, in the UK. It was kind of, you guys figure it out. And so that's exactly what we did. And it was, it was just an adventure and it was just a ton of fun and genuinely 
one of the not just the most enjoyable experiences of my life but also very formative I you know during that first year and subsequent to that I ended up growing up with the company, if that makes sense. So yeah, I went from makes perfect yeah, sense. I went from being this, you know, over enthusiastic young woman, right, who was really thirsty for success to, you know, really transitioning into a, a senior executive leader and and kind of all the growth and and the the growing up that goes with that sort of transition. So Jeanette, that's really, really important. And so I want to I want to touch on this for a minute. So you know, we've we've talked about this a little bit, I, I coach a lot of executives. And a lot of times in coaching executives, we talk about what their fears are and what their challenges are, what maybe what they're having problems with, with their team, or maybe what their senior leadership is. And, and I want to touch on what you said, because I mean, I, I feel this so deeply, like when you're talking about New York and the hustle and the bustle of the city, and you're like, yeah, let's go to kind of, you know, really kind of evolving into a thought leader, involving into not really being able to be so incredibly enthusiastic, but really having to take a step back and see not only how you're seen, but how are you, what are your leadership skills? How are you coming across? How are you developing others? Okay. One of the things that we touch on a lot is getting that next level to get to executive ready. Okay. And so we talk about presence a ton. So executive presence, what does that look like? And I got this really interesting question. So I'd love to hear your take on it. I've read a lot about you and I, I've read a lot about your leadership skills and how, how deeply connected you are to people. Do you think that coaching a woman into leadership is different than coaching a man into leadership and why? Um, that's an interesting question. And I guess I'd, I'd follow it up with a question. So when you say into leadership, right, because there's two different things, right? There's women who are actually very reluctant to take a step into leadership. And then there's women that are in leadership and their development journey is kind of very, looks very different to men because they're facing different challenges. So what's the lens of that question? So you just answered it perfectly. So my the lens was, it doesn't sound like your vernacular changes very much if it's coaching men or women, as long as the track is the same. The difference for me, and, and I'll share that with you, because I think that was a little bit of, of an unfair question, is they face different challenges. So while I coach them on the same skills and the same development tactics, I coach them differently because of the different issues that they will be facing. Yeah. And I would say that's 100% accurate. The challenges for a woman coming through leadership, I think, tend to be personal brand oriented is, is kind of one of them, right? Is just this idea of the rules change the further that you, you kind of progress. And, you know, this idea of networking, you know, being aware of how you perceived self-promotion, questioning, you know, sort of imposter syndrome and those types of things that come up. So really kind of uh, often actually very high on competence with women and lower on confidence. And <laughs> it's a huge generalization and no offense to any of the guys listening. You know, No, it, no, no, no. I think that's important. I think it's super important to call it out because I think there's so much conversation about gender and about, you know, right and wrong. And I don't really see it like that. I see it as just more of like development, like how, where are you and how do we develop where you are hoping to be? So while you're in New York, 
and you're having the time of your life and you're just living large, what was the most difficult thing that happened for you in the first three or four years? In the first three or four years, I would say I had to step into leadership faster than I probably wanted to, to be honest. I remember my was kind of a year in. And when I, when I say leadership, I mean, there was a few people that as I onboarded them and I was kind of training them, but I was very much focused on the client side and, and bringing in um, revenue. And I was really enjoying that. And, uh, you know, my boss was kind of like, hey, we came out here. To, to grow a business, right? So I want to build a big team around you, etc. And I was kind of like, ah, oh, you know, I, I, I don't know if I really want to, to kind of do this. And uh, I remember him saying to me, what are you going to do? Are you going to be a salesperson for the rest of your life? And after he said that, it kind of really got my back up. And um, I said, right. all right, I'll, like, be a, Wait, what? I'll be a sales leader then. <laughs> and so, yeah. um, so, so there was just a lot of, of rapid growth. And kind of one of the challenges that I'm supporting a few companies with right now in recruitment is this idea of when people are really good salespeople and then you throw them into leadership, you've got to invest in them and you've got to develop their leadership skills because being great at sales and being great at leadership are, are kind of two totally different things. And so yes. early on, I mean, I feel so sorry for some of the first people that <laughs> I really do because I, you know, I had super high standards and, uh, you know, and I was very, de- I know I was very demanding as a leader. Fortunately, the first guy I ever hired is one of my best friends now, so it wasn't too bad. But um, we, uh, yeah, it, it was challenging, right? It was just understanding leadership, but also who I was as a leader. And, uh, you know, I would say one of the things for me is, you know, I don't get everything right but I do have humility and I actually think Mm. that humility really served me quite well because I didn't think that I knew it all and I knew that I needed to to develop and there was definitely a certain level of immaturity in my initial leadership style but I was was happy to and ready to to kind of put in the work. And because I put in the work very, very early on, when I then look at the succession that I created within S3, I mean, I, I created so many other great leaders, which I think is the mark of a good leader, right? Is can you create that's exactly can right. You create other leaders. But it was a journey and it was definitely a challenge to to kind of uh, get to that stage. Jeanette, you said in one interview that people tend to underestimate the value of role modeling the job, meaning really showing people how to do a certain job instead of just telling them. Tell me what that looks like. Yeah, you know, so I was really conscious as I was building this business that particularly in the early days, you need a role model and you need somebody who can show you, not just tell you. And that's for a number of different reasons, like one, from a learning perspective and two, from the point of inspiring people, right? So I never wanted to build a business where I, it was purely an academic exercise and, uh, right. and, and people actually maybe even really questioned, can, do you even know how to do this? So I was re- really conscious that as much coaching as I could do, I'll do a lot of this on the job, right? So if I'm yeah. going to go do a 
client pitch, I'm going to bring you with me and it might go well and it might not go well. And either way, we're both going to learn from this. And I think that's one of the things I've noticed with emerging leaders. They don't want to be vulnerable in in front of their team. They don't want to put themselves in positions where they might potentially fail. Whereas for me, very early on, I realized that if I can show my team that it's actually okay to fail and it's not going to be success every single time, they're not going to be afraid to fail either. And that is how you learn to be good at this job. So that was a huge part for me of, of kind of role modeling is like, let's see how it goes together. And me being vulnerable, I, I think, allowed them to do the same. So I think you touched on for me, to, we, you know, there's pillars in leadership and there's pillars in how you build your business. And you nailed two of the three pillars for me. And that was you know, humility being number one and and vulnerability being number two. And you'd already spoken about being authentic as you showed up when we were talking about our childhood. I cannot stress enough to our listeners, vulnerability and humility are the style of great leaders. In order for you to create an amazing, amazing leader, you have to show people who you are. And you also have to show them how to flip the failure. So yes, we failed, but look at what we learned. I know I've always said, you know, fail fast. It's okay to fail fast and over and over and over again because it creates connection around people seeing that you're vulnerable, you did it, you got back up, and now look, like you said, the succession plan. Look at those leaders that came in and learned from your amazing skill set, and that was all because you lifted them up, Jeanette. Thank you. That's a really nice way of putting it. Yeah, absolutely. So can we talk about going from S3 to Harper Gray and like just the the overall, how did you jump from kind of career to entrepreneurship? Yeah, so it's a recent transition. So my journey, S3, by the time I jumped off the boat, we'd um, grew that business to 300 million. And so it was, uh, you know, it, it started off with a few of us in a room and by the time I left, there was 500 of us. And, you know, we had offices in six, seven different locations. I sat on the board of the of the company. I was running the P&L for our largest brand, our life science brand, 100 million. And I learned so much in, as I said, just really growing into, into that senior leadership role. And I I got very comfortable. So, and and in a way that I could justify it to myself, right? Because the company was, conti- you know, we had so many ambitious goals and, and it wasn't like we were kind of staying stagnant. And I loved my team and, and I loved the personal evolution that I was still continuing to go through within the company. So I could almost kid myself in a lot of ways and say, well, keep stay here and, you know, you you can keep growing. But I knew that I needed to do something that just brought me right back to a place of the beginning. And I'm an entrepreneur at heart. And the business that we were now running is this wasn't entrepreneurship. We're a big corporate. And that gave me this whole different set of skills. But I didn't want to continue, to be honest, number one, to, to chase somebody else's dream. And number two, 
to make someone else rich. And so I had this idea that was kind of brewing around, you know, just the inequities in the talent space. And the I'd been working in STEM for so long for many different reasons. There was this big flashlight on diversity, equity, and inclusion. But when I looked at the providers and partners in the marketplace, Number one, there was either people who were very, very passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion and very knowledgeable, but they didn't have the talent or staffing background to mm. kind of actually make traction in, right. in, you know, from that perspective. And I'd hear a lot of frustration around it's not really translating. And then on the other hand, I would see some companies that were highly commercial and had jumped on the DNI train. But then yeah. when I would look at them at an organizational level, like their whole board themselves, their whole senior leadership team looked as non-diverse as you could get. And so the, to me, that's just sort of capitalizing. Whereas if I went back to my original roots and started to think about what was important to me and my own journey of being biracial, coming from a lower socioeconomic background, which people really underestimate what a hindrance that is and then obviously being being a woman all of these different things I thought I can't make a difference authentically to these things at, at S3 it's not it didn't feel authentic or, or kind of core to to the business and that's just a personal opinion that that, that was just something that was that I felt and mm -hmm. um, so yeah so I decided to take the leap and launch Harper and Gray which was very much about addressing talent and putting diversity, equity, and inclusion at the heart of that. And, um, you know, on a personal level, it was just um, the most terrifying <laughs> thing to make the leap when I I was so secure. And, I, and at times I thought, are people going to think I'm absolutely, that I'm absolutely mad for doing this? You know, like if it's not, there wasn't, a burning platform at S3 and that's the really hard thing is when you you're doing something because you feel compelled to to do it and you feel that sense of purpose but nothing is nothing broke that you're leaving you know um, and, and I still felt very passionate about the company and the people that I was working with um, so it ended up being a really really difficult decision and um, and one to be honest that I kicked the can on for a probably for a year or two and and I realized that that was fear driven but um in the end I think courage is something that is so important to me and uh, to being able to look at myself in the mirror and knowing that I'm trying to you know be the best that I can be and so yeah so I, I took the leap in in April and honestly it's the best thing I did okay so I want our listeners to hear because because I hear so from doing this now a few times, okay, the flux and the back and forth and the and the conversations in your head and the the conversations with your support system and the conversations with your naysayers and your feelings. So tell me the final final decision. So you're, you're where are you and you're like I'm doing it. This is what's happening. Walk me through that process. The final decision for me was 
Rio, uh, which was the brand that I was, uh, I was, I was leading, we had our best ever year in the pandemic. So I'd sort of shifted, pivoted the strategy. And when I looked at our comparators, we grew five times the market average. And people were uh, congratulating me on, on a job well done and how did you do it? And, and my stock was at the ultimate high with the company, right? And I realized that if on the back of such an incredible year that I didn't feel that passion and that fire, that it's yes. time to step aside and also give someone else a chance, right? So I, I bought through again, amazing succession. And I looked at it and I thought this person here, the person that I felt would end up being my successor, he's going to grab this with both hands. He is right for the business. In the end, thought about my team. And I thought about the people that I really cared about. And I thought about how I'd felt in the past when people had stayed in the job too long. And I didn't want to be that person. You know, I wanted to step aside when it was the right time for the business and give other people their opportunity. And so in the end, like that was the defining moment for me it was like, I need to feel like I'm springing up out of bed in the morning and I just I cannot wait to to get stuck in. I'm a creator. Like I want to create something. I want to create a legacy. And um, I really wanted my little boy to be proud of, of whatever it is that I kind of created. And I would often talk to him about my uh, ambitions and dreams and he'd get so excited. He was like seven at the time. And I was like, I, I needed to do this. And, and so that, they, that was kind of that final, no turning back, I'm doing it. And I want to point out to our listeners, because I say this all the time, a true leader for me, when I look at leaders, they work themselves out of a job. They're constantly looking at who's next and why are they next. And again, like you said, they spring out of bed. They have passion. They have desire to grow. They have new ideas. They have new thoughts. I think it's just another feather in your hat, just saying, you know, exactly what kind of a leader that you truly are, that you already had a plan in place. And you know, this person's going to be so thankful and have so much gratitude for grabbing this and just running with it. I just think that's absolutely amazing that you allowed that opportunity for the person. So that's incredible. So I want to talk about Harper and uh, Harper and Gray. And I want to talk about what couple one or two key differentiators sets them apart from different recruiting agencies. Well, first, I think this focus on the authentic focus around diversity, equity and inclusion uh, from the from the top down. So the retained search part of my business really enables companies to look at their DNI challenges uh, from a top-down approach, right? So, so mm. many companies, you know, they, they set out these big goals. And when you look at the progress that they're making, okay, you're hiring these people in and the entry level and the mid-tier of the organization, but change starts at the top. And so if Absolutely. this doesn't look different at a board and senior leadership level, then 
we're not going to get very far. And so that's is number one for me is working with companies on leadership positions and looking to kind of change the landscape at the top. And then secondly, I wanted to, to have a talent solutions company as opposed to just a recruitment company, because diversity, that's the easy part for companies to say, you know, that are we there or not? Tick. Take mm-hmm. or, or cross. It's an audit. It's an audit. Exactly. Whereas yeah. the equity and inclusion piece often it's like a bit of a wall of jelly you know it's it's how do we actually wrap our arms around this and how do we it's more nuanced to sort of understand if we're um you know really kind of making progress but if you don't have those things in conjunction with your hiring efforts you keep running to standstill because you hire people it'll be one in and it'll be one out and so I had, you know, built some solutions that help companies with their processes, with training and with coaching and and the coaching piece in particular around coaching leaders to truly be more inclusive. And so those pieces really support the efforts on the recruitment side. And from what I could tell in the marketplace, there wasn't really, I couldn't see anything that, that really addressed those challenges in quite a holistic way. So not only does it not address it, just like you said, the the solution or the program or whatever it is, is so flawed um, in so many ways. So either it's it's a DEI audit. Okay, that's paperwork. You sit in a room and there's auditors and they're like, tick, tick, tick. No, app, do, do better here. And even if you do recommendations and even if you do an improvement plan, Jeanette, what does that even mean? People don't know. They don't understand. They have no idea how to solution what this process is. And so you creating the warmth and the empathy and the humility and creating a development program that actually is inclusive and goes, hey guys, this is how, this is what it looks like. This is when you know you've been successful. That must light you up every single day. It does. And you bring up a really good point because a, a big piece for me that I also noticed is sometimes this topic can be so heavily emotive for people because, you know, people feel sometimes guilty. We should be doing more or they're worried that they're going to be, you know, potentially kind of judged as a leader. And so mm-hmm. as a result, what happens when we feel defensive, we just try to avoid and we try Try yes. to we do the window dressing, but we don't throw ourselves into it. And so one of the things that the commitments that I've led with as far as my clients is I'll meet you where you are, right? So there's no judgment here. Like there's let's no just judgment. work to get better together. And I yes. think that when people that's actually helped to disarm and to actually start to have real conversations with with some CEOs who are kind of like, you know, I just I don't want to say the wrong thing. And so and so I've I kind of outsourced it to someone else, you know. And so I, I think a huge part of this is just how can we get people really comfortable with having these conversations? And so that's definitely been a really important part of how I've approached this. So I'm going to get super controversial right now on my part, not on yours. We actually just rescinded a contract for this exact thing. So we meet, we, 
zero judgment. I mean, no judgment whatsoever. I mean, we do as a, as a business, our lines of business are, are business consulting. So strategy and audience and talent retention and strat, you know, talent strategies. Okay. And then high impact performance coaching. And then we do crisis. So not crisis communication, but crisis as it happens, let's get you the experts that we need to handle this matter privately and very quickly. Okay. And so we recently got a call from somebody who I had worked with previously, and he said, hey, you know what? I think we might have a DEI issue and we'd like some education around it. And I felt it very interesting, Jeanette, again, being completely transparent. This gentleman is African-American, one of the most solid leaders I've ever met in my life. Just such a versed listener just very kind, is not gun shy. He will literally go, okay, let's talk through that. Like he's very engaging. He never loses eye contact. Let's fix this. Let's get to where we get a good solution. And he sets up this meeting about diversity, equity, inclusion, and 40-year-old Caucasian people come to the meeting. And fine, again, I'm not going to judge anything. That's completely fine. Thank you for wanting to make a change. And so we have this conversation and I'm, I'm really, I actually, it's funny because I got the feedback that I was very enthusiastic, which doesn't happen very often. Generally, it's like, you know, are you, are you there, Steph? And Jeanette, we were talking about what are they currently doing? How do they know they're not doing well? Like, I don't want to look at the data. I want to just talk to you. I want, I want eye to eye contact. You know, what do you want to do more of? What do you want to do less of? What are you hearing? How are you feeling? How are the people of color or how are this, this underserved ethnicities? How are they showing up? What's, what's happening? What's coming? It was, they were blank. And, and so I was like, oh gosh, okay, let me ask a question a different way. And so I showed up and I asked it in a different way. And so finally, I thought, you know what, I overestimated this meeting, I'm going to take a step even further back. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask HR for some some data, because clearly, I would thought we were like here, and we were like, we're not even so let's just take a step back. So I asked for data, scrubbed, washed, I didn't need to know very much. I just wanted to know kind of where we were, and they wouldn't give the data. And so I said, okay, so I guess I'm really concerned. Like, what am I, what do you why want am I here? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, hi. I'm like, well, what did you want me? And they're like, well, we just don't want to know what you would do. And I'm like, well, but it's not about my measurement of success. It's about your measurement of success. So what will you believe would be creating, you know, what's a successful program? And they're like, oh, we didn't say we were creating a program. We just wanted information. And then, you know, of course you find out a little bit later, there's lawsuits you find out later that there is a lot of hurt and sadness and inequality. And I go, you know, I can't leave them with that. I'm going to actually reach back out. And they said, thank you, but no thank you. We've hired a team of diversity experts. Again, 40 years old, Caucasian. Know you and you that. know what they said? <laughs> you, know, you know what they said? They said, there's women. Well, I mean, we, this is just a whole other conversation, right? Um, you know, yeah. there's, there's uh, it's really interesting on, on two levels. Number one is there is a lot of frustration right now coming from quote unquote diversity experts that are being hired into organizations because they're coming in passionate and, and ready to make a difference. And then they're realizing within a couple of months that they're there for window dressing. They've got no yes. budget. They've got no or executive decision-making powers. There's, it's not a job that's designed to create change. It's a, it's a right. job that's there to say, this is what we're doing. And then secondly, I, I actually just about to publish an article on this. The biggest benefactors of 
diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives right now are white women. And um, so it's, it's, it's sort of the closest thing to the status quo. And don't get me wrong, I'm such a fierce advocate of women in the workplace. Oh, for but, sure. But it, it's, you know, when you look in at these numbers and you see that, you know, white women are taking a, you know, 20 30 percent step forward in terms of board seats and then let's take african-american men have actually lost board seats in terms of like how that's kind of shaking out on percentile basis and we're still single digits it's Gosh. it's sort of you know we got a lot of work to do and we've got work to do in a way that is let's not just keep defaulting to let's do a little bit of change the change that's most comfortable to us right so what's what's closest to the the white man that's still dominating about 80% of these seats. Um, okay, let's get more white women in. Like, I mean, come on, we can do better than that. We can do better. And, and again, Jeanette, the thing is for me is when we were doing this, I remember this was my final, this was my parting, I guess, remark that they made when I tried, tried to get him back to the table. He said, well, what would you do if we handed you this? And he gave me some data. And I said, well, I would want to find out what your measurement of success was. I go, so normally here's how it works. And I kind of gave him, you know, this would take six to eight weeks. The personal interviews are kind of something like this. I would bring in an amazing consultant and company that only does this to really meet on like intrinsic detail and value for you and for your company. And I said, and they would make recommendations on exactly how this would play out. And he sat back and he goes, recommendations? I don't want recommendations. Is it in writing? And he goes, if it's in writing, they're going to expect us to do something. And I said, you know what? Thank you so much for your time. And I, I got off, I took a deep breath and I rescinded the contract. And it's the very first time I've ever done something like that. But I thought, I don't want to be window dressing for such an incredibly important movement I want to be part of the solution. Exactly. I don't want to be part of the noise. And I bet, honestly, that in rescinding the contract, that you felt nothing but relief when you when you did that. Uh, I felt like I actually just moved right back into an alignment. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. So before we close, I just want to talk to you about your own personal leadership style. What does it look like to lead with empathy and kindness? To me, it's the only way to, to lead. And for quite a long time, I almost think people think about leading with empathy and kindness was like this very feminine trait. And mm -hmm. uh, I remember hosting a leadership event about a year or so ago at, at S3. And I had my extended leadership team, which, you know, was actually male dominated. And so we were talking about leadership characteristics and what was important. And I brought up empathy and kindness. And it was you know, I think they thought I'd lost my mind for a second. Yeah. And, you know, the question that they asked me at the time is, how can we hold people accountable, right? Like, how can we have a culture of accountability if we're leading with empathy and kindness? And to me, that was really the heart of everything there is that, actually, these things are not mutually exclusive, right? So you can right. have performance standards, you can hold people accountable, but you can do it with empathy and you can do it with kindness. And for me, the way that you make people feel as a leader is absolutely everything, right? It's like that you could be actually delivering a really, really tough message. You know, I have had to 
fire people before because it's just is not the right role for them. But guess what? I'm going to treat them with dignity. I'm going to have empathy for their situation and I am going to treat them with kindness. And it's that that stays with people. I have fired people and and I'm actually amazingly good friends with them, right? Because of how I've handled that and and sort of um, the position that I've I've left them in. And so I I think if more people could just sort of understand that if everything that we do, we just think first and foremost, how can I lead with kindness in this moment? That's an amazing currency. And you get so much as a leader from employing that style authentically, right? It's got to come from a place of authenticity. Absolutely. So stick with me for a second. So you have no budget, you have no full-time employee count, you have nothing, okay? And you go into Starbucks and you're waiting for your coffee. What do you meet there? What kind of a person do you meet that you go, stop everything, I'm creating a position. What does this person show up with? What does this person show you that you're like, I have to have you on my team? Uh, so the connection, authenticity, drive and grit and passion, those are the things that get me up out of bed and is like so fundamental to my core. And it's always nice to be around people that bring something a little different to you, but the sort of fundamental character traits, I value uniqueness and kind of creativity, but at your core, you've got to be gritty, you've got to be passionate, you've got to be driven, and you've got to be humble and kind. Amazing. What were um, some of the challenges that you faced in moving into entrepreneurship? The challenges that I faced in moving into entrepreneurship is, well, I would say um, life doesn't come at you with a perfect sort of timetable. So I am in my late 30s and sort of, to be honest, kind of given up on the idea at this point of being a mom again. I've got an amazing little boy. And then just as I was about to take this leap and quit my job, I, uh, I actually discovered I was going to be a mom again. And congratulations. <laughs> thank you. And that's awesome. So the biggest challenge for me, I mean, again, a little pivot point. I'm just about to hand in my notice. The easy route here was clearly to stay in corporate America having some nice, um, a comfortable maternity leave. Um, but I, I, I decided to, uh, to, to choose what will, I think looks like the harder route, but in the end, I think the reward is going to be higher. And so, yeah, just balancing, you know, pregnancy <laughs> and being an entrepreneur, quietly growing a life inside me and also growing this business has thrown me a little bit of a curveball, but I wouldn't change a thing about it. And uh, this is by far going to be the year 2021 where I feel like I've done the impossible. I've launched this business and uh, and actually gone through a pretty challenging pregnancy and uh, the lights at, at the end of the tunnel. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. Jeanette, our last question is, and you know the show is all about obstacles and opportunities. What's the biggest obstacle that you've gone through that's turned into an opportunity? 
the biggest obstacle is is resources, is coming into my career with just a lack of resources and, and in a lot of ways, a, a, lock, a lack of uh, knowledge and mentors. And I think I'm just really proud of the ability to, to kind of create a structure and a network and to tap into resources that I just uh, didn't know existed. And, you know, my advice to any kind of listeners out there is it really is not what you start with is what you make of it and uh, and we've all got it within ourselves and and all got the power to make something of, of nothing right as long as we've got the, the right mentality and we're we're prepared to work hard and get after it that's amazing Jeanette thank you so much for sharing time with us please tell our listeners where they can find you um, when they want to learn more about your company or your journey yeah for sure so I, I, I live on LinkedIn so uh, you can definitely connect with me on LinkedIn and then also through the company website which is harperandgray.com that sounds awesome thank you so much again for such a special interview thank you I've really enjoyed it thanks for having me absolutely Thanks for listening to Spin It. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to hit that subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is released. Also, head over to YouTube to check out all of the live videos on our new podcast channel, Spin It with Stephanie Malik. The best way to support the show is to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more from me, hop over to Instagram and follow me at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y, S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E Malik, M-A-L-I-K, or visit my website at stephaniemalik.com.